today on Pence Exchange, dressing codes and social status, the political economy of sumptuary laws in pre-modern Europe. Welcome to Pence Exchange, the forum where we discuss everything related to the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. Today we will be joined by Marco Yama. He's an associate professor in economics at George Mason University. He's also a research fellow at the Center for Economic Research and Policy and a senior scholar at the Mercatus Center. Born and educated in the UK, Mark received his BA and doctorate degree from the University of Oxford. His main research interests are in economic history. He is particularly interested in the institutions that support economic growth and liberalism. Welcome, Mark. Hi, Fernando. Um, great to be here. Mark is here to talk to us about a recent paper he co-authored with the Cire Desierto on the political economy of sumptuary laws in pre-modern Europe. What were sumptuary laws? They were regulations that aimed to restrict excessiveness in the consumption of certain personal items of daily life, especially in food and clothes. And while this type of laws existed in Europe since at least the Greeks, their presence really spiked in the late Middle Ages. By the 19th century, however, they had all but disappeared. What explains this pattern? Religious and moral arguments were routinely offered to justify their enactment, so one may think that secularism brought the changes. Yet, as Desiree and Mark will tell us, the law's existence hinge on a more mundane aspect of elite competition between the incumbent aristocracy and the challenger new rich. Sumptuary legislation, then, arose in increasingly rich societies in Europe as a means for established elites to restrict social competition from below. Yet, when modern economic growth really caught up, the enforcement cost of the laws became unbearably high, which led to its demise. So, Mark, Let's begin by asking your motivations on doing this kind of research, specifically related to the clothing, as I think that's the focus of your paper. I've always found clothing a very interesting aspect of human life because, of course, it reflects on our own personal preferences or lifestyles, but it also reflects on our society's productive capacity. The problem is that maybe nowadays everybody seems to claim not to care about what they wear. For example, Steve Jobs the Apple founder famously wore the same clothes everywhere, the sneakers, the black turtleneck, and the jeans. So let me ask you, is clothing so freely available now that it no longer serves a signaling purpose? Yes, that's, uh, I mean, essentially, yeah. So in pre-industrial societies, clothing is very expensive. So it's a major capital expense. People would have uh, one or two, you know, sets of clothing. So the, the phrase, your Sunday best, you know, comes about in, in England in the 18th and 19th century because people would have two sets of clothing and they'd wear their, their best set of, of, uh, on Sundays and during the working week they would have another set of clothing. So clothes are very expensive. People um, pay a substantial proportion of their income on clothing and that's just not the case today. Um, you can spend a lot of money on clothing but you can also buy your clothes at Target and Walmart. They'll be perfectly clean and decent and you, you're spending a fraction of your income even if you, you're a low-income person. You can still buy an outfit for twenty dollars, probably thirty dollars. Um, so, so clothing has become very cheap. Um, clothing still does play a role in signaling one's social status to some degree. So, there's a paper by uh, Charles Hurst and Romanoff in um, 
Colony Journal of Economics, published in 2009, where we find African Americans tend to spend a higher proportion of their clothing, of their income on clothing. And the argument for this is that African Americans might be um, uh, presume people might presume them to be uh, poor or lower status, and so you have a stronger incentive to signal that they actually have disposable income by spending more money on on things like trainers and, and clothes. Um, so, as clothes become cheaper and more affordable, simply simple features about the clothes, like if they're clean or if they look good, are going to become less informative as a signal of social status. That's certainly true, but we still there still may be some signaling aspect. Uh, people often speak about Steve Jobs, his um, laid back or his style as being counter signaling. Like he's so rich and successful that he doesn't have to signal his status through what he wears. However, what I would um, clarify is our story is about status good consumption um, by different classes, and you, people care about status good consumption, and they care about the relative level of status good consumption. So we care about how much they are consuming of, of, of certain items relative to what, to what other people are consuming. So that can be motivated by um, what economists would call a signaling story, but it doesn't only have to be. And so, um, but I, I would I would argue I would agree that alongside the increase in enforcement costs as clove, as different types of clothing became more, more ubiquitous, the fact that clothing is is a, is a less important way to signal. Um, income or status is one reason why sumptuary laws became less important over time. Uh, you know, we can signal our income or status through the holidays we take, through the photos we, the experiences we have, through the cars we drive, and so there are other dimensions of signaling status which have become more important than clothing. So, Mark, I would like you to elaborate a little bit on the historical background of sumptuary laws or more generally speaking of why, on the motivations of why people chose to wear the things that they actually wore. So you just said that nowadays African-Americans basically value clothing different compared to other ethnicities or at least other sectors on society. So what were the differences in the past? Of course, it's well known that in medieval times, Jews were required to wear different insignias or different clothing compared to Christians, but what were the obligations or requirements for other sectors of society? Like, do we expect to see differences in gender or in regional terms? Like, what were the Spaniards wearing compared to the English or the Germans? Yeah, so um, I should probably provide a broad overview. Um, as you said um, in the introduction, Fernando, the um, sumptuary laws are old, so they were common in the ancient world and in the Roman Republic. And then they, they disappear with, with the Roman, late Roman Empire, fall of Rome, um, an early medieval period. What you see in that era maybe is some things like clerics wearing different clothes or some kind of um, rules, but those rules might be just there to distinguish different classes in society. They're not regularly updated, they're not enforced. What we would think, what we define as sumptuary laws really emerge in the high middle ages, the age of the commercial um, revolution, the period in which markets, trade and commerce are expanding. And initially, they're fairly simple. They're to regulate particular items, which people think of as um, uh, where people observed um, a dramatic increase in, in, in kind of consumption and expenditure. So things like uh, shoes, uh, particular types of shoes, or uh, gold or silver trim on your clothing. So by nature, the types of clothing people wear in society differ. So in different societies, they regulate different things. Um, so there are some differences regionally and there are differences in focus. And I think the differences in focus might respond to where fashions are changing or where new innovations are appearing. So different types of clothes are becoming available and different groups are comp uh, uh, competing. So 
maybe only the rich would initially wear these fur trims. Um, the minion fur, or particular particular furs are more um, desirable than others. But as the middle classes, uh, the merchants of the bourgeoisie start also purchasing these things, that's when the demand comes from elites to impose laws which restrict it, which punish you if you um, if you uh, wear these clothes and you don't have a requisite social status. So um, there are a lot of differences between religious groups and and also gender. So there were specific sumptuary laws on Jews, for example, in medieval Europe. And this is partly because um, Jews were often economically quite successful as merchants, as traders, as bankers, as moneylenders. They, they would often be able to wear quite extravagant clothing. And so Christians would resent this because they would believe that Jews should have an inferior status towards Christians. So there were sumptuary laws on Jews. Um, often these are externally enforced, that, that's the main motivation, but sometimes there might be a desire for internal enforcement. Perhaps the Jewish community fears persecution if they're perceived to be too successful, too rich, if they have too much surplus money around. So they might have an incentive to within themselves impose restrictions on their clothing. And you see that in Eastern Europe, where black is often imposed in order to, to you know, so that they, they make the whole community targets for persecution. Gender is also a big component of this. And now I don't have a one line answer for why that is. It could be that women's clothing always has more potential, often has more potential for extravagance, for different variety. And so women's clothing was an area where people could spend more money more easily and households uh, you know, might be potentially spending a lot of money on the, on the dress of women. And so that's something they would, they would want to regulate. Because the, the, the motivation here for regulation is if I'm an elite, if I'm a lord, an aristocrat, I, I, I have higher status in my society than the merchant, and I want to demonstrate that and maintain my high status. And if the merchant starts wearing the same clothes or more luxurious clothes than me, I'm going to resent that, and I'm going to need to get even more luxurious clothes. So I'm going to spend a lot of my money on, on competing on this, on this social status, this rat race to, to wear finer clothing. And it's easier for me to just say no. Only lords can wear this type of clothing. And that's the nature, the nature of the sumptuary laws we observe um, speci specifies often what you can wear by your social rank. So women's clothing, I think, is an area where the expenditure could get, um, could get high very quickly. We have examples from Florence, which we report in our paper, where people talk about spending um, to up to 80 florins on, uh, on a pair of shoes. Uh, when a good pair of shoes would talk, cost no more than six florins. And this is a time when the annual earnings of a skilled worker might be 37 florins. So we're talking about, you know, this is equivalent of tens of thousands of dollars on an item of, sh of shoes. So um, that's why women's clothing might be regulated. Another area of expenditure, which is, which is unsurprising to us, I think, is marriages. So how much you spend on a marriage would also be regulated. And, you know, nowadays people can spend absurd amounts of money on a marriage hundreds of thousands of dollars easily, or tens of thousands of dollars uh, you know, commonly. Um, so yeah, that, that's another area where they would limit the number of guests, limit the extravagance of a, of a marriage. One very interesting aspect of the argument that you make in your paper is that income matters the most in explaining the creation of these sumptuary laws in more commercially oriented societies. And I think it it does make sense, like, for example, in Spain, where religion played a larger role in social life, well, the mechanism of elite status competition, well, it was not there. Elite status was mainly defined not by the capacity to consume, but by the fact of belonging to a given group, which was given mainly by religion, of course. 
So even if the commercial classes became richer there, it wouldn't matter to the religious elite because they were still elite. So there was less need for sumptuary laws in these kind of societies. But then it leads to a question up until what point income actually becomes, it becomes the preponderant variable that supersedes other dimensions for elite competition. Okay, so let me unpack that a little bit by going through the argument in the paper for, for kind of listeners. So what we find is that initially, um, as incomes go up, um, some tree uh, laws increase. And we think what's happening is as incomes go up, people are, are moving above the subsistence, subsistence level. So we have more money to spend on luxuries, more money to spend on clothing. And so when, when societies are very poor, the elites are not threatened from below. So they don't have to wear that extravagant clothes to maintain their high social status. As incomes rise, um, the lower class, or think about this as the middle class or bourgeoisie, start to have surplus income to spend on luxuries. And so they start competing with the rich. And this is expensive for the rich. So the rich have an incentive to impose some tree laws. So in the initial period, in the couple of late ages, um, we find both at the country level and also at the city level that um, incomes go up, some tree laws increase. And we find uh, this is stronger, as you say, for societies with quote unquote less extractive or less rent-seeking institutions. And as, as you said, that actually makes sense. So it doesn't make sense on a cultural explanation of the sumptuary laws. You might think more elite-driven, more repressive, more extractive, or somehow less less egalitarian societies would have, would have more sumptuary laws. They would restrict clothing more. But actually, it's places like Florence or Venice, so these mercantile republics, which we think of as being kind of republican or almost proto-democratic, that's where you see the most sumptuary legislation. And that's because it's that's where the, the, the middle classes or the bourgeoisie are quote unquote rising the most. So the elites have the most incentive to try and clamp down on, on sumptuary good consumption. And so whereas Milan is a is a despotism in the Middle Ages, the Visconti family have Milan in an iron grip and may pass fewer sumptuaries. They pass some, but not as many as as uh, Florence or Venice. Um, so that's right. And then so, so this is kind of, this development seems to be peaking in a renaissance. In the 16th century, 15th, 16th century, you have the widest proliferation of sumptuary laws, particularly in Renaissance Italy, but also in England and other parts of Europe. And then by the 17th century and certainly by the 18th century, even though incomes have kept going up, you start to see these laws decline. I mean, particularly decline in the more quote-unquote advanced economies like England or the Dutch Republic. And so why is that and so what so why is income no longer you know is it no longer that the middle classes are competing with the elites no we think the middle classes still are competing with the elites throughout this period it's just the, the competition um maybe maybe has moved on to some other dimensions and the enforcement of the laws, which is a key variable in our model has become much harder and I think the two things that you related so one of the reasons the enforcement is becoming harder is because there's so much more consumption of goods which can signify status so it's not just the so in france you see this in the 17th century they they pass more and more sumptuary laws but they're not just about clothing anymore they're about what kind of wagon can you have how many horses can pull your wagon how how ornate can it be um so is there more dimensions of of, of status spending or as status spending becomes more kind of prolific more and more or as more and more people can afford more and more items of clothing it becomes harder to enforce and eventually enforcement collapses. So uh, you see this to some degree in England where 
the subsidy laws collapse quite early on. Well, clothes prices are, are gradually falling in this period and eventually ready to met where clothing becomes uh, possible. So I think at that point, it becomes hard, too hard to enforce and, viola- and violations become more widespread. In England, being abolished for subsidy laws, or subsidy laws fall away in the early 17th century, but there are continuous demands from elites to reinstate them through the 17th century. And I think one reason they're not reinstated is this concern with enforcement costs. Um, 16th century England seemed to be quite, quite a lot of resources were spent actually enforcing this, uh, collecting um, the statements of informers, using courts like the Star Chamber to enforce, and eventually that's just not feasible. So these laws become a dead, dead letter eventually. Hey, talking about that last point, about the decline of sumptuary laws, wouldn't you say that besides the story that you just told us about the enforcement costs becoming too large, it would also matter kind of the supply shock in which basically clothing became cheaper to produce, cheaper to consume, and so its signaling purposes became weaker because of that. It basically became kind of an inferior good, and that also contributed for the decline of the efficiency of the sumptuary law. Yeah, so eventually, that's the, so, so I think I have to disentangle those, those things, which are all correct. So one, clothing becomes less important. So there are other dimensions on which you can signify your status. Uh, two, incomes have gone up a lot. So that's is all related, of course. And so there's, there's people can consume a lot of um, these sumptuary goods, uh, I mean, status goods, and it's very hard to crack down upon it. So clothing can be regulated to the degree that you're wearing the clothes, right? But if you're if 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 you if you have if the way you signify status is somewhat different, then it might be harder to enforce those those rules. And there might be non coercive, non legal means for maintaining the status differences. Um, so status threat um, might be less of a concern if you can um, enforce it enforce status differences some other way. And so yeah, elites are always trying to distinguish themselves from non elites. And whether or not they use the legal system to do it is, is going to vary from society to society, I think. So I know your paper is all about Europe because that's where you found your evidence. But do you know what was happening in the rest of the world? I mean, even some anecdotes that you may tell us. So, for example, specifically, what was happening in China? I know, I mean, I would guess that the same social pressures, the same incentives that existed in Europe would also exist in a even more civilized society as China in the medieval period. So China does have some true laws. The one can, um, a caveat to interpreting the Chinese some true laws is that during the Qing dynasty, there's a distinction between Manchus and Han Chinese. And so the law is sometimes about um, maintaining those differences. And those differences are ethnic differences as well as status differences. The Manchus are higher status than the Han Chinese, but they're also ethnically different. And so I think it's a little bit complicated. We don't have data on the Chinese sumptuary laws. We do have some data on Japanese sumptuary laws, and it's it, they're not really directly comparable with the European data because there's actually so many of them. And... Um, Many of them pertain to the samurai or to the peasants. So there, there's a strict um, demarcation in Japanese society between merchants 
peasants and samurais. But actually, the main concern, one of the main concerns for Tokugawa Shogunate had in Japan was the expenditure within the samurai class. So the samurai were buying these expensive clothing, silks and so on, and actually bankrupting themselves. And they wanted the samurai class to maintain, being able to maintain themselves in order, to, in order for them to have a military force to call upon. So many of them were not, um, some of the laws are about what you can wear, but sometimes it's about with it, um, samurais have to limit their consumption of this based on their income level. Um, and what we find is in the 19th century, just prior to the Meiji Restoration, actually, the number of these sumptu laws goes up a lot. So perhaps in this period in the mid-19th century, when the social status is breaking down to some degree, and potentially, I mean, incomes may have been going up, certainly with some high level of commercialization, and there's beginnings of opening up of trade, then the sumptu laws proliferate like crazy. And then they're abolished in one go in 1870 with the Meiji Restoration, all sumptu laws are abolished. So you, you see a slightly different pattern to Europe. You don't see a gradual increase of then a decline. You see a kind of rapid acceleration of then a collapse, um, which has to do with the change in the political economy of, of the Japanese um, state around 1870. And what was happening in other regions of the world? Like some people may claim that maybe China is too different to be properly compared to Europe. But what was happening in Eastern Europe that may help us understand what was happening in Western Europe? Um, good question. The only data I'm aware of really for Eastern Europe is Germany and Czech, the Czech lands. And Sheila Ogilvy, who's now at the University of Oxford, has collected data on, on these sumptu laws. And she found that in the early 18th century, um, at the city, local village level, sumptu laws were very heavily enforced on villagers, on peasants. So they were enforced. Um, we found sumptuary laws in, in Germany and Austria, Hungary until the 18th century. So they, they're, in, they're, they're in place till a little bit later than in Western Europe. But um, but uh, they're, they're at some point in the 18th century, they change a little bit. Uh, they become like laws about wearing a national uniform. And they say they change into being more mercantilist laws. So laws saying you have to buy goods produced in Russia or in Sweden. Um, so you do find them, but they didn't proliferate to the same degree that they did in Western Europe in the late Middle Ages and Renaissance. Returning to the previous point about the mechanisms and the explanations of the decline of Sumtray laws, I've recently read some literature on a general, more general topic about why people consume luxury goods that is related, of course, to the status signaling effects. The interesting part is that when these people do consume goods for the sake of just pure signaling, they do so based on their own perceptions about their own and other social classes. Let me just frame this in an example. So the Ralph Lauren Polo shirts and the Louis Vuitton bags, these are famous brands recognized kind of a luxurious goods and both articles are kind of easily recognizable by everyone, mostly because these brands like to stamp their logos in all their items. And they can be quite expensive, but they are not really truly elitist. I mean, they are expensive, but they are not signaling that you are an elite to people that are elite. They are more like a mechanism to signal from middle class that they have some capacity to consume, but they are not buying extremely expensive goods. So another example would be like Rolex. Of course, Rolex are quite expensive and I are luxury good. And middle class people actually aim to buy a Rolex watch. 
but you know that there are many more expensive watches that actually attract the really elitist people. So what is my point? My point is really that maybe Suntory laws in this time ceased to exist mostly became because they became redundant by self-enforced signaling consumption preferences. So there were kind of a mechanism by which societies became so stratified in different classes that their own perceptions became so different, so there was no need to enforce the existence of laws for you to wear a good that made you part of a class that you were not part because people already realized, kind of internalized these problems and they found their own solutions. Um, so it's again a lot to unpack there. So what I would say is in our model, in our theory, we simplify, right? And we have two classes, an elite and a non-elite, a lords, aristocracy, and merchant class, which is maybe suitable for you know, some settings in medieval Europe. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty... Um, intuitive and sensible way to think about these distinctions but actually now uh, as society becomes more complex there are multiple um uh i mean they're not strict classes but they're multiple groups within society and status comparisons are always local right so you always care about your consumption relative to your neighbor relative to your your friends your peers your brother-in-law right do i make more money than my brother-in-law or so that's the comparison not do i make more money than stephen jobs or uh, not do I make more money than some person in destitute who's destitute in um, sub-Saharan Africa. So it's always a local comparison. And so as society developed and became uh, richer, I think there are more groups within society, potentially, and who's competing with who becomes um, more, 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 more complex. And so that maybe what is one reason why a crude tool like a sumptuary law becomes less appealing to elites if there's some other, there's a, some other dimensions over which they can distinguish themselves. So, um, yeah, that that would that's one way of putting it. I mean, elites still want to restrict access to certain goods. So you know, having a beachfront property in um you know in california or near martha's vineyard is, is desirable and it won't become desirable if everyone has one so you want some dimension of restricting it um but who you're competing against might, against might change um uh it'd be and 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 the the yeah so that's that's one way of thinking about it. i don't think it's a full answer to your question but i think that the the dimensions of groups people are signaling their status against has become more complex of economic growth that both makes enforcement more difficult and it also makes for law a less valuable tool maybe for regulating consumption. Great. So moving forward, one thinker that I've been reading lately is Thorsten Bevelin, who is famous precisely because of his focus on the political economy of luxury consumption and its social status. While I'm not a fan of his work in general, I kind of find him interesting. So do you see your work as an institutional validation of his broader thesis? Yeah, so there's a tradition, there's, there's uh, Thorsten Veblen, there's a guy called Dewsbury, and then there's also more recently Akilov, George Akilov, and there's some other people as well I'm kind of forgetting to cite, but there's a tradition of emphasizing relative consumption, basically putting relative consumption in the utility function. Uh, it goes back to Veblen. And so we are in that tradition. So, you know, our... our our individuals in our model 
and not strictly speaking Homo economicus, who only cares about his own consumption, because he cares about their consumption relative to some 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 uh, reference point, which could be the consumption of the other good. So yeah, that's that is in the spirit of Veblen. Um, I I I feel I find Veblen a little bit frustrating as an economist because I think he threw out many of the insights of Adam Smith and and other. I mean, Adam Smith observed that we care about status and, and other people. I think Veblen threw away some of those insights, and so he's a an economist who's liked by non-economists almost. But he definitely has insights which are relevant for thinking about society. Yeah, he, he does not think in terms of marginal utility or anything like that. I mean, he's not really what you would consider an economist nowadays, even though he holds an economics position in his own day. And he's always emphasizing non-economic points as terms of power, relative power, but also elite competition, like the things that we do in political economy. And the whole idea of conspicuous consumption is kind of a point. So, so people consume things not because of the sake of the pleasure the good they consume provides, but because signaling motivations. Yeah, I think so. I think Veblen, Veblen's insights are put into a, a, a discipline by a model, disciplined by uh, you know um, marginal analysis and kind of some formal economic theory, are very insightful. And like so, in our model, for example, as economists, we don't want to depart. We want it to be as general as possible, and we don't want to depart. From like the common assumptions that all economists have, like mainstream economists have, except where we have to, right? And so where we think it's important to depart is in this utility function, which has relative consumption. We think that's an important, you know, aspect of human behavior that relative consumption matters, uh, for, at least for some questions. And so, so we change that. We make that kind of like, you know, a little bit non-standard. Although people like George Akerlof have worked with those consumption functions, utility functions before, rather. Uh, but we don't want to depart elsewhere. We don't want to, everything else has to be as standard, as mainstream as possible so that we can integrate our work with like other other studies. That's, for, that's for kind of the, the methodological approach we're taking. Following on that, would you say that your argument or your model more specifically can be applied to more than just sumptuary laws? I mean, here we're not just talking about mere clothing or regulations about dressing, but really we're talking about power and power relations and its relation with economic aspects of life. So you could say that a lot of seemingly weird and efficient laws can actually be perceived as rent-seeking arrangements that just favor incumbents. I don't know, like, maybe zoning laws. Like, people want to restrict the usages of land not because they care about the usage others would make of that land, but just because it has externalities on the perception of what type of land it is and that affects them that threatens the status they used to have about that land yeah so, so definitely zoning laws partly there to restrict access to housing um it's hard to distinguish how much of that is just pure status like i have a, a beachfront property in california and how much of it is like maybe crowding you know like i don't want too many homes near me because it reduces my view it, over the roads get crowded. So some some element of zoning laws, some element of NIMBYism is 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 it could be rationalized without status concerns, I think. But some element of NIMBYism or zoning laws are definitely status driven. So so that element whole or transfers from our setting and subject laws to zoning. Where it's a little bit different is the the modeling of the enforcement. In our subject laws, we're specifically thinking about people consuming above a certain limit and then they could evade. They could evade the sumptuary laws if you know if, if it's hot. If no one's enforcing the laws, they're going to evade more. 
and it's going to be costly to check what people are wearing or investigate people's homes for what their furniture looks like. So there's some enforcement costs. So there's some dimensions to the Sumptree Law story which will not transfer directly to the zoning story. The zoning story, you know, it's like the regulatory framework has to be a certain way and there are economic costs that society bears as a result of our zoning laws, but they're not born, you know, who bears them. So, so it's similar, but a little bit different. Uh, but yeah, definitely zoning laws have some of those features, as do kind of like restrictions on entry to elite universities. Um, you know, um, Harvard or indeed Penn could be much larger than they are. They could scale up and probably provide a very high quality education to more students than they currently do. But if they did that, then the brand of being a graduate of a Ivy League school would be diminished, and that would cost people cost certain people uh, a lot in terms of relative status, and so they have an incentive not to, not to want those schools to expand. So donors will want um, a university to have build a new building, or maybe to to have um, what, a few more scholarships. But if someone said, you know, this donation will triple the entry level class, I think it'd be less popular. But universities self-enforce their quotas, so wouldn't that be different? Sumptory laws were governmental law. So what kind of story would you say is similar to that today? I mean, that it is not self-enforced within the group, but enforced in terms of exogenous legislation that may prohibit people from doing certain stuff. Uh, that's a good question. I, I, have to, I have to think about that a little bit more. Uh, I'm not sure I have a great answer because we could think about areas of consumption which the state prohibits. And, and, and So drug consumption is obviously one, but I think drug consumption doesn't have a status good element to it. So it's not driven by status concerns. So I would have to think about um, some other dimension um, where, where the state taxes things. Okay, So a lot of, a lot of luxury taxes. There are taxes on you know luxury cars, on yachts, or so it's luxury consumptions uh, limit, but they're not the same as prohibition. Um, but maybe there are, there are areas where you prohibit, so for example, sports um, uh, drugs for sporting competitions. So you, athletes are prohibited from using performance-enhancing drugs. Um, but there, there's some potential justification in terms of um, uh, health health costs to the, to, the, to the athletes. So again, it's a little bit different. It has some similarities. Yeah, I'd have to think more about other examples, though. Well, thank you, Mark. I think we have spent a fascinating time talking about some trade laws. Uh, do you have anything else that you would like to add to the discussion? Um, I think it's, this is great for this topic. Um, yeah, short and sweet. Yeah, I've had a great time. Thanks, Fernando. Thanks for hosting this. Talk to you next time. Even the most mundane aspects of daily life have deep historical backgrounds that beg to be explained. Clothing is nowadays taken for granted but not so far in the past, when clothing was not readily available at the mall or even at the supermarket, it was one of the most precious goods to have. So normally, the type of trousers you wear mattered. Even today, one can distinguish a policeman, a fireman, or a doctor by their stereotypical uniforms they wear. Clothing tells a story of what you do, what you are, and to what group you belong. Sumptuary laws arose in a period when social mobility started to become a thing, and the old aristocratic incumbents realized other groups, other people, started mimicking what they did and wanted to enforce rules to stop that. At the end, it didn't work. Stories like these are quite common in human affairs. It is the labor of the social scientists to study them, 
across space and across time. It is my job to help you understand why they matter to you. I hope you can join us in this new voyage to understand society. been Pence Exchange, Markets and Cooperation, a podcast from the Penn Initiative for the Study of Markets at the University of Pennsylvania's Economics Department. Our goal is to bring a thoughtful, fact-based and entertaining discussion on the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. I am Fernando Arteaga and I will be glad to hear from you. You can follow us on Instagram and on Twitter at Penn underscore Exchange. Stay tuned and see you next time.